So as we push through into our new series on the person of Jesus, we're asking a bunch of questions. We feel like uh, Jesus lives his life in such a way that we should, he should cause us to ask some questions. It's remarkable how he lives. What he teaches is um, thought-provoking and a bit earth-shattering. It's different than anything we've heard before. So last week we asked the question, who do you say that I am? Um, from the question that Jesus asks his disciples. And we kind of posed that question as Pastor Kevin preached and talked about um, what is it that we think of when we think of Jesus? What images come to mind? Um, What questions do we have for him? And is there some knowledge that we can come to know and understand through study? So if you know him to be God in, in your life, your personal Messiah and Savior, praise God. And we want to encourage all of us to ask questions about do we really know him, and how would we describe him, and do we truly understand what it is he's teaching, and of course, we all understand in part and not to the full. And if we're at the point of our journey where we're not quite sure who he is, we just encourage the asking of the question, who is he? Is it possible to say that he's just a moral teacher? And Kevin used the quote last week from C.S. Lewis to say, not really, because a good moral teacher doesn't go around saying that he's God. That would be a crazy person. And so we kind of talked about that, that needing, to, needing to wrestle down that question a little bit. And all of us needing to come to the point, no matter where we are in the journey with Jesus, of simply asking some questions. So this week, our question is, who's your daddy? And we are going to be wrestling a bit with the question of who Jesus is and what the Bible tells us about him. We're going to go through a couple of different passages at the very beginning of Matthew and the very beginning of Luke. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have them available at the back. And um, we can have some people throw those up for you guys. And we're going to kind of um, go through the text together. I am a preacher teacher at heart, and I'm really excited about what's happening. But I love it when you open up the book for yourself and you look at it. And we kind of wrestle through it. Don't take my word for it. Um, So if you don't have a Bible on your uh, phone or something like that, you can grab one at the back. Okay. As we talk about who's your daddy, the question for me seems to be one of identity. And when I think about life, and I think about the questions that have most shaped my own life, I ask questions about myself like, whose am I? Who do I belong to? I have a mom, I have a dad, who are they in my life? I have a sister, uh, and, and who has my back? And that's true for a lot of us that our family members do have our back, but some of us it might be true that our family members don't. And so we have found ways to find support and care in our larger communities, maybe at church, maybe at a job, maybe in a neighborhood. You've picked good friends. And, and that question of who will protect me, who has my back, shapes our identities a little bit, doesn't it? And the question, why am I here? What, what purpose do I have? All of us at some point have wrestled with that question. And maybe we still are wrestling with it. Maybe you're in the midst of a career question, a change, trying to figure out what is it that you're here for. Maybe the thing that you thought you were supposed to do somehow fell through. And you're now having to figure out what plan B is, which ultimately somehow is God's plan A, but that's news to you. And so as we try to wrestle through that, why am I here? It's a question of identity. Who am I? Who am I uniquely created to be in this world? And our whole life is spent asking and trying to answer some of these questions. How did I get here? 
Our origin stories are huge. I can tell the story of how I got here. Some of us can tell stories that are very detailed and and that have lots of um, goodness in them. And others of us can tell stories that maybe aren't as glamorous. But they're still our story. And they still shape our identity. And so as we ask those questions and we wrestle with those, we're shaped by those answers. We're shaped by who we are, who loves us, who cares for us, how we got here, what we think we're called to do, how we've been created, and what we really believe about those things changes how we interact in the world. I think that's true for Jesus as well. And Jesus, fully God and fully man, and that's the mystery that those of us who follow Jesus as God embrace, that he is fully God and fully man, in his humanity has to develop in this, in the answers of these questions. And most teachers and scholars will talk about how Jesus has a really high level of self-awareness. That he seems in his humanity to truly know who he is and what his mission is. And that shapes a lot of what he does and how he moves forward. So if we're to truly know Jesus, and then ultimately to know who we are in Christ, we also have to ask these questions of Jesus himself. And to let those answers then reflect back into our own lives. So you guys ready? Amen? Awesome. You guys can be loud. Don't worry. You can raise your hand, ask a question. We can go for it. Okay, so let's answer first the question, whose am I? And we'll go right to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We're not going to read the whole thing in grand detail, but this is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, many of us who grew up in church, this is the part that you skip over, right? The long list of names that don't seem to mean anything to anyone. And we're just going to jump right to verse 18, right? If you're in a Christmas play and you're there, they don't start with, here's the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Generally, the Christmas play starts with, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And they never really stop to answer the question, wait, wait, who? And where did he come from? And why do we care? But the genealogy here is going to tell us some incredibly important things. So let's just take a look for a moment. Matthew starts with a stunning statement. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ is not his last name. It's a descriptor, and it means Messiah or anointed one. And the name Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, means the Lord saves. Okay? So the record of genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, stop. Why do we care about that? Because there's prophecy. Because we've been told that God made a covenant in 2 Samuel 7 with David in the house of David. That David would always have a descendant on the throne. And that through the line of David, God would bring about the one to save all of Israel. So Jesus cannot be Messiah. He cannot be Christ unless he is in the line of David. Matthew, a good Jewish guy, knows this. And his audience knows it. So when they say this is the genealogy, everybody in the ancient world moves to the edge of their seat. Everybody in our world's like, oh, okay. But we should also move to the edge of our seats. Because if we don't know 
who he belongs to, we can't truly understand everything that's going to happen coming forward. He has to be of the line of David. So we find that out. And then we find out from Matthew that he's the son of Abraham. So that beautiful covenant that God makes back with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17 and following forward into that, even into the experience with Isaac, those moments that God has with Abraham, those are reaching all the way back in Jesus's family line too. Fascinating. We're fascinated at this point. We're all on the edge of our seats. We can't wait to hear how that actually happened. And then Matthew develops a genealogy that is fascinating in a couple of regards. One, he makes sure that you understand that there are 14 generations in the first section, 14 generations in the second section, and 14 generations in the third. If you look at verse 17, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Why do we care that there's 14? Why has David constructed his genealogy in such a way and at times to miss a generation or two in order to make sure that he's able to paint this picture? Why? Well, in Hebrew, the alphabet letters have numerical values. They didn't have numbers in ancient Hebrew. And so like an A is a 1, a B is a 2, a C is a 3, like if it were English alphabet. So it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav. So if you were to spell David, which is Dalet, Vav, Dalet, it equals the number 14. That's the numeric value of David's name. So Matthew, as he starts to write this genealogy, he's not just going, hey, you know what's really cool? He's from the house of David and he's from the son of Abraham. Matthew's like, and you know what? Just in case you don't get it, I'm going to paint that picture for you really really clearly. So as I frame the first section, I'm going to go, he's from the son of David. He's, He's in that line. And the second section should be shouting to us, David, David, David. And the third section should be shouting, David! And everyone's like, no way! And they sit on the other seat again. See, you never knew genealogy was this fascinating, but it truly is. The next thing that Matthew does that just blows everybody away in the ancient world and should blow you away today is that he includes women in the genealogy. Whoa! And women who have interesting stories. The first one, in verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and, Ter- and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And if you don't know who Tamar is, go ahead and pick up that story in Genesis. It's pretty interesting. Her name means date palm, and it's a beautiful name, but she has to sleep with her father-in-law and then convince him that she's not a prostitute, and she actually is continuing on the line of David. So you just found out that you're Messiah... Yes, his lineage comes from that type of... Now, she's the more righteous one if you read in the story. And then as Matthew goes on, he continues and he says, Solomon, the father of Boaz in verse 5, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, the woman of the hour who helped the spies, hide the spies in Joshua's day. And maybe that's why Boaz was much more willing to welcome into his family line another Gentile, a Moabitess named Ruth, because his own mother was Rahab. And he welcomes in and marries Ruth, who a Gentile by all means comes in and is going to bring about Obed and then the father who is the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. 
Then Matthew does this hilarious thing. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Does anyone know the name of Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. So apparently that David Bathsheba incident still bothers Matthew. And he doesn't want her name put in. And it, it seems clear, at least in Matthew's mind, that Bathsheba full well knew what she was doing as she bathed naked on the roof. And knew that the king would see her. And though he seems to be glad that that's part of the line and Solomon came from that, he's still not really pleased with Bathsheba's behavior. So she's just going to get a mention as Uriah's wife. I love the Bible. It allows the humanity of all of us to push through constantly. That beautiful, beautiful passage of genealogy tells us exactly what we need to know about Jesus. That he is fully God, fully man, that he reaches back to Abraham, that he reaches through the Davidic line, and that ultimately he even encompasses in his lineage, bringing all people unto him, even Gentiles, even women, all included, even women who bathe on rooftops before the king. Now, if we'll flip really quickly to Luke chapter 3, Luke tells another story of the genealogy. And some people believe at this point that Matthew's really focusing in on Joseph's genealogy and that here Luke is going to be telling us a bit of Mary's genealogy. However you reconcile that down, here's my favorite part. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 21. Luke introduces the genealogy after an event. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said this, you are my son whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. Then he says, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphat. And then he continues through. But you see how Luke makes sure that you understand that as you hear the genealogy that's coming, that you understand that though Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, that you know truly that Jesus is the son of God. Because he has introduced right at the very beginning, God ripping the heavens open and shouting down, this is my son. Okay, now let's go through how that happens. And he goes through all the genealogy here, and they point out, of course, because it's Luke, he's very concerned about these things too, that he is of the line of David in verse 31, and that he is of the son of Judah in verse 33, and Isaac and Abraham. And then it continues on, and we even get Noah's lineage in there. And then at the end, in verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. God himself created Adam. God himself breathed life into that first human being. And Jesus is in that line, reaching all the way back to that first human being made in the image of God. So Luke wants to push back and say all of humanity. Jesus is part of all of humanity, reaching back from before Noah, reaching back from before Adam. 
And of course, John in the beginning of John will talk about that incarnation of Jesus from before the beginning of the world. And you can have a chance, hopefully, at some point to take a look at that. So the Bible starts by saying, you want to know who Jesus is? Let me explain who he belongs to. And not just only the human line, but also ultimately being part of this, being God's own son. Now, the next question we want to ask about Jesus is, well, how did I get here? If Jesus truly is the Messiah, if he truly is the son of God, if he truly is God incarnate, God wrapped up in flesh, then how did that happen? And the first place we go to is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, I did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, immediately, we should kind of, again, be sitting on the edge of our seat. This isn't something you've heard of before, is it? And if you were Joseph and this young bride of yours, whom you are betrothed to, which was just as important as the marriage covenant that would come later, and you found out that she was pregnant, you would think that she had been misbehaving, yes? Yes. And all of a sudden, now we're going to understand that part of Jesus' story is that he's going to come into the world in a way that causes the rest of humanity to question his legitimacy from the very beginning. And if we talk about God taking on human flesh and fully embracing and understanding our human experience, then part of what we understand by the how did Jesus get here story is that Jesus got here by embracing even the most broken part of us, even the part that can be exposed to public disgrace, and any taunts that might follow him for the rest of his life, any questions about his legitimacy come from the means by which he got here. God could do this any way he wants, right? Ultimately, we'd all probably lean back and go, well, if he's God, then he's God, and he can do what he wants. But God chooses for his son to bring him into the world in such a way that allows him to experience the full weakness of our humanity. And Joseph, he's a great guy. Because in the ancient Israelite period, and, and we're not quite sure how much of this carried through to the first century period, but if a woman who was betrothed to a man was found not to be a virgin, then the husband and his family could go to the bride's family and say, everything you own is mine. Because they had entered into a false agreement, declaring that their daughter was pure when she wasn't. But Joseph, because he's righteous, is going to say, well, I'll just divorce her quietly. That'll leave the family estate intact. And she can just deal with the fact that she's pregnant. But after he'd considered this, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, the Lord saves, Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. How did I get here? Well, I got here by an act of the Holy Spirit. And I got here because a righteous man chose not to divorce my mother quietly. Let's turn to Luke 1, 26, and let's ask one more question, because there's another player here, right? Who's the other player in this story of how Jesus got here? Mary. She's a big component. So let's talk about Mary for a minute in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, verse 26, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of... David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary's greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be barren in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And this is what Mary says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. You imagine being that kind of disciple. Mary sets the example for all of us, just as Joseph does. The type of disciple that hears and obeys. And Jesus is going to be searching out for this kind of disciple, his whole ministry. He's going to be trying to cultivate this kind of disciple. The type that his parents are, his earthly parents, stand there and say, yes, I will do that. And I don't think I would have said that if I were Mary. I would have said, can you change that greetings, you who are highly favored? Because I don't feel very favored right now. I feel teased. I feel made fun of. I feel that people are going to question my legitimacy and the legitimacy of this child. I feel afraid. But instead, Mary says, sure, may it be to me as you have said, and starts that process in Jesus's life that's going to be part of his identifier. The part of what it means to follow God in his humanity is to say, yes, Lord, So even later on in Jesus' life, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's standing there praying for God to take the cup of suffering for him prior to the crucifixion, when he is just yards away from an escape, from all that Rome is going to bring crashing down on top of him, he could just go right over that mountain into the desert and be gone. Instead, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Where did he learn that kind of faith from? It's from how he got here. He learned it from his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. And God places his son into families, into a family lineage that stretches all the way back before time through Abraham, through David, and ultimately through Mary and Joseph's lines so that Jesus can fully embrace all of his divinity and humanity for each one of us. Show us how to live. So how he gets here 
makes a big difference in how everything happens. Let's look really briefly at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the spare room. Does anyone have a translation that says in? Yeah, it's a bad translation. It's not in as in like a place, bed and breakfast. Um, The word there is spare room. And we'll show you a picture in just a little bit of what maybe that looked like. But as Jesus is brought into this world of how he got here, it's through very humble circumstances, isn't it? There's no hospital, there's no clean sheets, there's no room for them, and they are where the animals are, and he's placed into a manger because there's no room in the spare room in the guest room. So let's continue. We find out a little bit of how Jesus got here through Mary, through Joseph, through their obedience to this miraculous, unbelievable story. We know who he is, where he's coming from. And then we're going to start to ask this question. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2 as we flip back and forth. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So let's ask the question, who am I? So Jesus is here. He's been born. He's on the stage. And here are the magi. The Magi probably being somewhat like uh, mystics, maybe is a good word to use for them, coming from the east, possibly from the area of the Nabataeans, where the spice trade route is coming up. If you guys ever um, saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, and you see that really cool um, carving in the rock. Do you guys remember? It's like a, it looks like a building, looks like a temple. That's the Nabatean area. So if they're coming from that area, they're coming from that type of wealth and opulence. And they show up, and it says in verse chapter 2, verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod had heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Herod, by the way, is almost always disturbed. So uh, this isn't huge news, but the fact that all Jerusalem's also a little bit disturbed with him is interesting. And he calls together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asks them, where is the Christ that was to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So Herod calls the Magi secretly and finds out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search of the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too can go and worship him. The least sincere statement ever recorded. (laughs) And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The title, King of the Jews, 
starts to stir some fear in the hearts of the oppressors in the land. Why would Herod care about this? Because he thinks he's the king of the Jews. He even has coins minted that say so. Herod, king, Jews. He's in charge. And as Herod gets these visitors, he's known for these incredible, amazing building things. He's very into his kingly power. This is Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. He builds this beautiful harbor. He builds this incredible hanging palace right there in Masada off the desert. Um, This is maybe an artist's rendition of how the palace hung down. And there at Masada was found a jug in Latin. It says, Herod, king of Judea. It had wine inside, and on this jug is the date of the wine and the kind of wine. So everybody knows, even from Latin-speaking countries far away, that Herod is the king of the Jews. How did Herod become king of the Jews? He made Rome say yes. He was very wise, but he was very politically savvy, and he was incredibly strong militarily in terms of just squelching whatever would come against him. He killed several of his sons. The talk during Herod's day was that it would be better to be a pig in his household because he would keep kosher than it would be to be one of his sons because his sons were going to be killed. Herod built up in Jerusalem the temple there. Here's a picture of what that would look like. This is modern-day Jerusalem. And just as stunning as that temple, the Dome of the Rock is today, you could picture the temple there. And here is a diagram of what Jerusalem would look like. And we're going to go in. Remember, it says that the Magi come to Herod in Jerusalem. There's his palace. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. It's declared so on wine juglets. It's declared so on coinage. It's declared so in all the architecture in the land. Herod is in charge. He is the king. And instead, these Magi come from the east and come and hang out at this little palace, and they say, hey, uh, so where is the king of the Jews? Can you imagine saying that to Herod? Hey, we've come to worship him. It's not you. Where might he be? And it says, and Herod was disturbed. This is, by the way, today, if you go to Jerusalem, this is Hebron Road. Here are some late Wall, a wall here that's from the time of Herod's palaces. And just down here where this remaining tower is from Herod's palace, right on the other side is an entrance to Herod's palace. So Herod has just hanging right there. This is some of the fortification um, layer foundation stones of Herod's palace you can still see today, as well as one of the foundation stones, the foundation areas of one of the towers. And so right here, These magi come and they're like, so where is the king of the Jews? To that palace, hanging on the edge of the western part of the city, right by the gate here. And by the way, this is the place where Jesus will be crucified not long after, 30 years after. Right in that place of power. And so the magi come and they say, where is he? And they say, it must be Bethlehem. So they continue about four miles south, show up in Bethlehem and worship the child. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they continue back to their country another route. 
Now, in that area, just south of Bethlehem, Herod had another palace called the Herodian. And he had really taken the top off of one mountain and stuck it on top of another. Had this beautiful palace that he would escape to, right very close to Bethlehem. Bethlehem really smushed between the power of Herod in Jerusalem and the power of Rome and the powers of Herod in Bethlehem, just south at the Herodian. Here's an artist's rendition of what that beautiful palace would look like with hanging gardens inside. But you see the magi who are desperately seeking, sincerely seeking the king of the Jews. They don't find him in a palace. They don't find him in Jerusalem and Herod setting there. They don't find him in the Herodian over here. They find him in a four-room house. Israelite style where the animals would be in the home with the family. They find him in an area that's nondescript. They find him maybe at the base of that home in something that looks a little bit more like a cave. In the shadow of Herod's power, that's where they find the king of the Jews. And this question of who is Jesus, who is his father, who's your daddy, who's my daddy, who's his daddy, is starting to get answered in some pretty incredible ways. You see, Herod had declared that he was king of the Jews through the power of Rome, through the culture of the Greeks, through the fact that he was a half-Jew through a forced conversion back long before in his family line from Idumea. So he kind of was, had the faith of the Jew for convenient purposes, and he had the culture of the Greek, and he had the power and secularity of Rome. And he's smushing all of that together, but he is not the king of the Jews. And so when the Magi come and they ask that question, they don't find the answer in a palace. They don't find the answer in the halls of power. They find the answer in a cave. They find the answer in a child. The shepherds find the answer in someone like them. Do you think shepherds would have been invited in Luke's portion of the story? Invited in the palaces of Herod to worship? No, absolutely not. We ask this question of, who do we say Jesus is? Well, the Bible tells us from the beginning. Magi, Gentiles tell us from the beginning. He is the king. He is the king. And he looks nothing like you expect. He's come as a child, humbly. He's come of questionable lineage. And you won't find him in the halls of power. But that doesn't mean he's not powerful. He's placed in a manger, most likely stone, used for holding water for the animals. Animals didn't have really dog dishes, personalized dog dishes for the sheep. You know, back then they just eat off the floor. But you need something to hold the water in. And so that person who is going to become the living water for each of us is placed into a manger that holds water, wrapped in those strips of clothing, just like a shepherd would do for his own child born. Jesus comes like that. And the Bible tells us, yes, yes, now you have it. That is the king of the Jews. So next time you're at a Christmas play, just remember that the birth of Jesus smells like a stable. It doesn't smell like pine trees and potpourri and all those lovely dreaming of a white Christmas kind of images. Those are nice, but that's not what it smelled like. 
That's where the king comes. So much of what we understand about the person of Jesus is answered by how he gets here. And when he would grow up asking that story, how did I get here? The answer would come in these stories, in humility, in all of that. Now the question that I would like to ask if I were growing up, and I asked this many times, and my parents answered the question regularly with, by protecting me, is who has my back? My parents did. My father is a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, retired, thank you very much. But man, I knew he loved me, but he was kind of a little scary sometimes growing up. And, and I knew he would take out anybody who would come against us. Even just a few years ago, we were in the car <laughs> with my parents and, and someone misunderstood, mistook the car that we were in. My dad was getting gas. And they thought that one of the um, car magnets that was on the outside was their own. They were just coming up to our car. They thought they had a car that looked very similar. And so my father, out of the corner of his eye, not a young guy, right? I mean, he's, he's sprightly, but, you know, he's retired, <laughs> sees this gentleman. Kevin and I are in the car. We're fine. We're grown-ups, right? And I'm not four. And this gentleman in the car approaching our car and ready to touch a magnetic sticker, right? It was for the, it's for the troops, to support the troops. And my father, hey, 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 and like started running towards the car. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and I just know my whole life that my dad's got my back. He's going to save me. In fact, when I went to Israel and I was going to live there for a little while, he was like, well, I have to get my passport renewed. And I was like, dad, really? Why are you going to come visit me? He goes, well, if something happens. And I'm like, so if something happens, you have to come. Him and all the Marines are going to come and, and rescue me. My dad has my back. Well, guess who had Jesus' back? His heavenly father and his earthly father. Go with me to Matthew chapter 20. You see that, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. You see that after the Magi visit, Herod gets upset, and he's going to put out an order that wants all of the babies to, that are going to be born to be killed. But at the very beginning of Jesus's experience, we see in that first story that when Joseph is thinking about divorcing Mary quietly, who shows up to convince him otherwise? God himself sends a message and says, don't do that. So we see God actively interceding on behalf of his son instantly. And we see Joseph, his earthly father, immediately obeying. After the visit of the Magi then, in chapter 2, We have, here we go, Herod, which is completely in character for him, issuing a decree that all of the baby boys need to be killed in Bethlehem. Because he doesn't want anybody threatening his, his reign, his rule. But when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you to do so. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up and took the child his mother in the night. Who has Jesus' back? Joseph has his back. Joseph is going to wake up his family in the middle of the night and say, Let's go. Who has Jesus' back? God himself. God himself will say to this man, Joseph, in a dream after a dream after a dream, here's how you care for your son. God himself will show up to Mary and say, here's how you prepare for the one that's coming. God himself has Jesus's back. And he's given Jesus earthly parents that will do the same. And I just love the fact, too, that, um, you know, this is not the first time we've heard of a man named Joseph having a dream in Egypt. 
they escape to Egypt, right? Because out of Egypt, I will call my son, the Lord says. And in that case, God is talking about Israel, his firstborn son. And here that verse is used for Jesus, his firstborn son. And when Herod realizes he's been outwitted by the Magi, he has all of the babies killed. And then verse 19, after Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. There's some great stories about a guy in Joseph in Egypt in Genesis getting dreams and listening and obeying. And here we have it happening again. So we see right away that many people care desperately about who Jesus is and that God himself has Jesus' back, that God himself will intercede on behalf of his son. Let's very quickly answer this question, and we're going to talk about this for the next several weeks. And why am I here? So in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, beginning, when Mary finds out that she's pregnant with child, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and she has this song placed into her heart, and she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of servant. For now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. I think Herod's going to come down. And he has lifted up the humble, and he fills the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So Mary's song immediately is not just that, wow, thanks so much. It's so great to be pregnant with a child that people are going to accuse me of being illegitimate. Her song isn't, I'm just really thrilled that I get to have a son. Her song is, and God is now starting the process of redeeming all of us and of setting things to right where the, the proud and the haughty and the corrupt are going to start to be taken down through the birth of this son. And the humble are going to be raised up. Zechariah is going to be saying something similar as he prophesies over the birth of his son. And he says of his son, of John the Baptist, in verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. If you're going to go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Why am I here? The Bible answers this question very clearly. Jesus is here, right at the very beginning, as a babe in his mother's arms. And we can tell you he is here because he's going to start to change things. He's going to start to change some significant things. As his parents take Jesus to the temple... At the end of chapter 2, Simeon, who's been waiting there for a long time for this consolation, the salvation of Israel, sees Jesus and starts to praise God, sees this eight-day-old baby and says, Yes, I know why that guy is here. Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared for the people in the sight of all the people a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Simeon knows why Jesus is here. To bring salvation to all. 
He knows that things are starting to be set to right. Anna prophesies as well and says, yes, I have been fasting and praying for this moment. And she starts to speak about this child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. No longer in the hands of of powerful, corrupt rulers, but in the hands of an eight-day-old baby, these people start to see the turning of the tide. And through asking the question, who is he? Who is his father? Who has his back? And what is his purpose here? They start to see that the whole world begins to change. And we can see this today too. Now, as I ask these questions of myself, whose am I? Who am I? Who has my back? Why am I here? How did I get here? I now can learn that because Jesus himself talks about his disciples as children of God, and then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, that if my heavenly Father will do that for his Son, my heavenly Father will do it for me too. And those questions that I need to answer, who am I? You're a child of God. Who's your daddy? You have a heavenly father in heaven. He loves you. Who has your back? He does. Does he have a purpose for your life? Oh, yeah. He has a plan and a purpose. And our partnership with God allows us to participate in all that God does for Jesus and all that he'll do for each one of us. So who's your daddy? And if he's your heavenly father in heaven, then do you live like it? There was the story of a young girl. She was a daughter of the king, and she loved growing up in this beautiful palace and had everything to her heart's desire, every kind of Disney princess dress you can imagine. She had the best time. But when she was about four or five years old, she wandered outside of the palace grounds, outside, peeked out through a hedge, and found herself lost, kept just following the next most interesting thing that she could see, you know, like kids do. And now is lost deep, dark in the forest. Her clothes are tattered. It's been days now. She's hungry. She's thirsty. She looks nothing like the princess that she is. And she stumbles out the other side of this forest. And a potato farmer and his wife find her. And they bring her in. They don't know who she belongs to. They can't tell anything by how she's dressed. They bring her in and they raise her as their own. Now, years and years go by, and she's out in the field, and she's digging potatoes because her dad is the potato farmer. And she's doing that, and somebody from the kingdom is walking by on the road. And he stops, and he looks. He looks again. No, it couldn't be. He looks again. He goes, do you know who you are? She said, yes, I'm the potato farmer's daughter. No, 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 no. Do you know who you are? We thought you were dead. We searched everywhere for you. We, we longed to find, we, we tried to find you everywhere in the world. We thought you were gone, but you are the daughter of the king. You're the long lost princess. You have to come back with me. No one's going to believe it. It's the most amazing thing. We, I can't believe you're alive. And she goes, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm the potato farmer's daughter. And, and this is my father. And this is my mother. And I belong here. This is my family. This is my home. I'm, I'm not going back. And so he continues down the road and goes back to the kingdom. But from that day on, she dug potatoes differently because she knew she was a daughter of the king. 
we don't yet live in that wonderful home that Jesus is preparing for us. But guess what? You now know that you are sons and daughters of the king, and we can live differently here and now as a result of who our father is. Amen? Amen. Amen.